When we eat, we are not just eating for the me. We are also feeding the 100 million microorganisms that live in the me. And that leads us to ask, do our microorganisms have a vote? Welcome to the award-winning Food Chain Radio Show with your host, Michael Olson. And now, get ready for one hour of What's Eating What Radio. Well, hello out there. I am Michael Olson, your host for this hour of What's Eating What. Today, we're going to be talking about a very interesting subject, and I hope you tune in. You know, it's not just us that live in our body. In fact, there are 100 million others that also live in our body. Wow, that's a, a population greater than most countries in the world. But as the 100 million microorganisms that we carry around with us are very small and do not have much of a voice, we mostly just ignore them and go about our business without giving them the least bit of concern. On the other hand, that there are 100 million of them is a good indication that their lack of size might not indicate that they have a lack of stature. And so when we come to the realization that the me is really the we, all kinds of interesting questions pop to the attention and just beg to be answered. And so today we are going to beg for some answers from Andy Dyer, who is a professor of biology at the University of South Carolina and the author of Eater's Digest. Welcome back to the food chain, Andy. Ah, it's good to be back. I have to correct you on one thing, Michael. Oh, good. Good. Fire away. A hundred trillion rather than a hundred million. <laughs> okay. Plus or minus, plus or minus several <laughs> trillion. Well, a hundred trillion. So how do you count that high anyway? There, there is no way to do it, actually. It's an estimate based on sampling. So um, it comes from a way back when someone said, well, there's a lot of bacteria. I wonder how many. And they sort of did some sampling around the inside of the colon and said, well, based on that, we'll just extrapolate to the size of the colon. And it's yeah. somewhere in this neighborhood. Good. You know, take a city block and count the people on it and estimate yeah. the rest of the, of the city from that. From there. You right. know, it's been five years since we last touched base. And when we did, we were talking about... Uh, uh, chasing the Red Queen. Yeah. Now, I would before we run off in another direction, I would love to have you give us a thumbnail of how you use Lewis Carroll's Chasing the Red Queen to instruct your students. Well, I think that the the uh, sort of allegorical aspect of Chasing the Red Queen just applies to so many things in our life. But the basic idea is that um, if you're you you can't just rest on your laurels. Um, you know, once you've achieved something, you have to keep on pushing forward, or the rest of the world will catch up with you and maybe even pass you by. So the idea is that you've got to keep running if you're going to stay in the same place. And if you want to get somewhere else, you're going to have to run faster. So um, this is, applies to, and I use a lot of analogies, but it applies in a lot of ways to life. If you think of a, a business who's doing really well and everyone looks at that business and says, that's a great idea. Let's get into that business too. Well, um, everybody who's in that business is now competing and, and the worst competitor is not going to last very long. So everyone's going to have to step up their game if they're going to stay in that business. Mm -hmm. 
and ecology is much the same way. Um, as a predator gets stronger, the prey better learn how to avoid them, and as the prey learn how to avoid them, the predator better figure out some tricks to keep eating. Kind of reminiscent of Satchel Paige, who was a famous pitcher, lived a long time, pitched a long time, and once famously said, don't look back because you never know what's catching up on you. (laughs) (laughs) So you've changed the direction a little bit, but you do still teach ecology and you have young students. And I would suspect your analogies are something that can keep them awake uh, during class. Am I wrong? Well, the whole idea is to try to make these sort of conceptual things more relevant to everyday life. So if I can find something sort of equivalent that they can relate to, then it helps them remember the concept I'm trying to teach them. So I think it's important, uh, rather than just throwing a lot of jargon at them and these abstract concepts that they don't, that don't really connect with them particularly. Um, I know that the, the minute we take a test, they'll do a memory dump and never think about it again. <laughs> <laughs> but but if I can relate it to something that they do, then there's always that, hey, we talked about this. I know oh. something about this. I have that story. I have the, a story to think about and puzzle as I go about my day. Yeah. You know, four years, five years uh, since we talked, it seems like the whole world has changed upside down and inside out. But, you know, when we last talked uh, about resistance and whatnot, I don't think we had a single thought or brought up the subject of our microbiome. And now the microbiome is really becoming a focal point of the of our attention with respect to our body, our health and everything. When did we start really when did this really bubble up to the surface this concept of the microbiome? <clears throat> Um, for me, it uh, was less than 10 years ago. Um, I had a student who was very interested in it, and he started using words like dysbiosis. And I said, what, what do you mean? And it turns out that dysbiosis is a new word that is specific to a microbiome that's out of balance. And if you look up in Wikipedia, you'll see there's a gigantic ent- uh, entry there on dysbiosis. And, and I'm willing to bet that 99% of the people you talk to have no idea what that word means or what it relates to. And yet there it is. It's, it's got this gigantic description. It's very specific in what it's about. And, and so this, this is brand new stuff. Um, and we're finding out that the microbiome in the human body is literally connected to every part of our functioning. Uh, it, big in some ways, small in other ways, but nonetheless all connected like a giant spider web. And so even though we haven't heard of it maybe until recently when we see a yogurt ad on TV or something that's advertising a probiotic yogurt, um, it's going to become more and more part of our regular conversation, I think, in the coming years. A hundred trillion organisms we carry inside of us and outside of us. We're, and it weighs we're, about two and a half pounds. I mean, we've got two and a half pounds of bacteria in our, in our body. Wow. So uh, in thinking about how to approach this, I came up with a question. Do, does, do they have a vote? 
Um, it's a quiet vote, but they have a very powerful vote. Um, the whole concept of dysbiosis is what goes wrong with our body when our bacteria are not in proper balance, and the answer is all kinds of things go out of balance. Um, and ultimately, it starts with the food we eat. Uh, we are not eating a good diet. We are going to be faced with um, a microbiome imbalance, and that's only going to be made worse by, who knows, trauma, illness, um, uh, infections, uh, um, any number of other things, past experiences in our lives um, that complicate this sort of thing. Um, and we're seeing a huge number of what we would think of as new diseases that have propped up that have probably been around, but they weren't all that common. But now we're seeing them becoming more and more and more common. And in fact, the consensus is that they are linked to an imbalance in our microbiome. Now, when we eat, we are satisfying our hunger. But when we say our hunger, we're not really taking into, a, into account our microbiome. We're talking about ourselves. And so as we come to grips with the fact that there are two and a half pounds of living critters in us and on us, uh, should we not start thinking about how, how to feed them as well? That's a good question. Um, we... we it's funny. As humans, we think of ourselves as being very individualistic. Um, but if we start to think of ourselves as an individual with this gigantic community of living things that absolutely depends on us for its well-being. We're like a city walking down the street. We are. Uh, or more, or even you might think of us as sort of a, an inside-out planet. Um, we've got this gigantic population of organisms and we are the sort of mobile unit that moves them around through the larger environment and they depend on us we feed them and if we don't feed them then they get kind of unhappy with us um, but they only eat one kind of food and it's a very specific kind of food uh, the bacteria in our gut eat plants and that's all they eat and the reason that's all they eat is because that's all we feed them I mean when we eat our food the food that runs our bodies, we're just talking about carbs and proteins and fats. Um, and we don't, you know, we eat plants, but the plants sort of move through us. <laughs> we don't get a lot out of the plants, per se. Um, but that ends up being the food for them. And so it's important for us to remember that if we're going to have a healthy microbiome, the food that they get is not the food for us. They never get the carbs, fats, and proteins that we eat because we absorb all of that. They get what we can't digest, which is plant material. And that is, in fact, what the focus of the, um, the, the sort of the circus of bacteria in our, in our colon is really all about. Wow. So let's go back a little bit and say, what the heck is the microbiome? Well, when we were born, we didn't have a microbiome. We didn't have any bacteria. The general feeling is that a, a baby, when it's first born, is sterile. And but and, and the, how the baby accumulates a microbiome is really kind of fascinating because it turns out that a woman goes into labor, 
she has cells in her body that move bacteria from her colon to the birth canal, a very particular kind of bacteria that creates an environment there, um, one, that keeps other bacteria out, but two, provides an opportunity to latch onto the baby as it comes through. So kind of like painting the baby. Yeah, kind of like that, definitely. There's a, the baby is awash in um, this embryonic fluid, and that embryonic fluid is carrying all of this other bacteria with it down the birth canal. So the, the mom's body is actually doing that on purpose because those bacteria are the first bacteria that enter into the baby's body, and they are instrumental in initiating the digestive uh, process in the baby. That is, this is a, a little person who's never had solid food, never had liquid food, never had any kind of food through its mouth. And when it does, it needs to be ready for it. And having something that can handle mother's milk, um, lact- lactose sugars, for instance, um, is going to be important for digestion. And the other thing the mother does is, in the body, the, those uh, those carrier cells are moving bacteria to mammary glands, and mother's milk is loaded with bacteria. Holy smokes! Not sterile. Uh, um, and so, mom hold, is hold giving... that thought, Andy. We're just going to have to take a very quick break. Okay. But this is going to take us to a very fascinating place, given what is ha- happening in the United States with respect to formula. Yeah, Yeah. this is the Food yep. Chain Radio program. Michael Olson, your host for this hour of What's Eating What, with Andy Dyer, professor of biology, University of South Carolina, and the author of Eater's Digest. Today we're talking about how important it is to eat for ourselves and the 100 trillion organisms that we carry around with us. Right back. And now, more of What's Eating What on the Food Chain with Michael Olson. Yes, we are back, and we are talking about how mothers confer microorganisms, I guess, to their babies, and how those microorganisms become part of that little baby's human environment. And as that baby grows, I suspect that uh, population of, of microorganisms grows as well. Andy? Absolutely true. Um, the initial set, I guess, the little subset of bacteria that mom gives a baby is really important for digesting breast milk, uh, which is helpful because the baby has no other... Well, uh, you you could even think that if until the baby's sort of digestive system gets turned on, uh, something else has to do the digesting for the baby. So, and, and that will happen soon enough. And then over the course of, you know... Uh, being exposed to parents and siblings and well environment of the home and, and then later solid food, the baby starts to accumulate more and more bacteria uh, in the colon. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where it comes from. We, we are born without it and we accumulate it as we move through life and we are still accumulating it even into old age and it changes over time. So backing up a little bit to the mother and the breast milk, it is the mother's breast milk that confers a lot of the bacteria uh, to the baby as well, correct? Yeah, yeah. The most important first bacteria, yeah. It helps the baby get on its way. What happens to the one-third of the population that uh, does not breastfeed the babies? What happens to the babies when you do not get that um, magic 
microorganisms uh, from the mother's milk? Well, they're going to get them eventually because um, mom's microbiome, her breast microbiome, is is just one small part of her gut microbiome. And so um, it's certainly in the environment. Bacteria are so, so tiny. They float in the air. They're so tiny that they can be literally everywhere, as we know, and we're we're all obsessed with being clean. But we really can't get away from our own <laughs> microbiome. It's it's honest. It's in us. It's it's around us. It's in our clothes. It's with us. Well, take um, take, us, so, yeah. take us around get, the body. Don't get inoculated. Yeah, take yeah. us around the body and and let's talk let's talk about that microbiome. Let's start with the skin, because it's what we all see. Are there any micro uh, organisms on our skin? There are literally hundreds of different kinds, and a lot of fungi too. Not just bacteria, but fungi as well. And they are, well. It's, I don't know if we can say they're normal inhabitants, but they're common inhabitants quite often. There are plenty of funguses we know about, like athlete's foot and, you know, things like that. Well, okay, those are ex- inhabitants on the external human body, and they're not dangerous. They may be unpleasant to some. Um, but your skin is has got lots and lots of activity on it, especially in places like your armpits and your crotch and your back of your knee and your feet, nice, warm, moist places where little microorganisms can thrive. Um, There's no real evidence that they do good or bad things other than occasionally causing some discomfort. Um, There's no real evidence that the microbiome on our skin is necessary. But again, we know so little about it, we Mm -hmm. can't say. And so they're there. We can scrub all we want. But they're still going to be there. Um, what about the mouth? Uh, the mouth is a lively place. <laughs> For, in, many, who, in many respects. <laughs> <laughs> the man who uh, who is credited with in, uh, uh, introducing microscopes to our world, uh, Antoine van Leeuwenhoek, um, he studied his mouth intensively and frequently and found all kinds of things going on that you just couldn't get away with. And he studied other people's mouths and found that they had more and different things. And there are something like 800 different species of organisms that have been identified from the human mouth. Um, <laughs> most of them are just, you know, they're just there. They're 800 really... different species? Yeah, not all in one mouth, of course, but, yeah. you know, just the, the total list. But, um, yeah, and some are oxygen-loving, and some uh, exist in the more oxygen-depleted areas, and some are out in the open, and some are hiding. Um, they're just they're just there. They're, they're normal. They're not doing anything necessarily bad to us. Um, they may be involved in things like gingivitis or or caries, but um, there's not a lot of evidence on, on those sorts of things. Um, and then there's some in there, like uh, little amoebas and whatnot, that are hunting down the bacteria and eating them. So we've got a whole little ecosystem going on in there. Wow. A whole Amazon jungle, as it were, inside yeah. of our mouths. Highly diverse. Uh-huh. And uh, then let's go to the big place, which, of course, is the digestive tract. Most of the digestive tract does not have bacteria in it. So the esophagus, the stomach, small intestine, pretty much bacteria-free. And And why is that? 
Well, that's where we absorb our food, um, among other things. But also, the digestive tract tends to have oxygen in it, and oxygen-loving bacterial species can quite often be dangerous. We've got a lot of uh, white blood cells roaming around in those places, sort of looking after it and cleaning up the debris. So um, they make an attempt to keep our upper digestive tract fairly clean. Um, so our stomach, essentially nothing, uh, except for a little bug called H. pylori that is a resident in a lot of people's stomachs. Um, and our small intestine, pretty much no bacteria except what might spill back, a little backwash from the large intestine. There's a, there's a lot of acids in, yes. in the digestive system, are there not? And does that have an impact on the you know, colonies of, ba- of microorganisms? It does. It's a pretty hostile place for most microorganisms. But as soon as our food enters into the, the small intestine, we start secreting uh, enzymes, bile, for instance, that help neutralize the acids and bring the pH back down to a more or less uh, neutral zone. Um, and that certainly makes the... Uh, that environment a little bit more inhabitable, and plus, there's a lot of food in there. We we that's where our food is getting digested and broken down, and absorbed. Um, and so, and you would, and you talk about it being our food, which is I do, I do, which um, is which is the uh, fats and, and the and the proteins and the carbohydrates, right? Right. These are what I refer to as metabolic food. We eat that food to, to fuel the furnace and to keep our bodies going. Um, that food doesn't, it's easy to digest. We are really good at digesting those foods. We can digest them in a matter of, um, well, it's estimated that the amount of time it takes to move through the 20, foot or, 20 feet or so of the small intestine is about 90 minutes. We do it fast. Mm-hmm. We can really break that stuff down. That we are so good at that. Does that describe why we get fat? Certainly if we eat a, what they refer now to as sort of a concentrated calorie diet, which is what we are eating because it's so enriched in fats, um, and we are eating less and less plant material, which tends to dilute the caloric content. We're eating bread and meat and fats and things that are just rich in, in calories, and we're super good at digesting that stuff. We can do it very quickly. And yes, the consequence is that we absorb all of those readily available calories. Mm-hmm. So then what is not used by us continues on down the line and goes through this gate that you talked about. What is the gate? Um, well, <laughs> it's that... It's that, um, that gate between the small intestine and the large intestine. So here we have the small intestine where lots of digestion of, of these organic compounds is going on, and we're absorbing them really fast. And it's a fairly microbe-free area. And then we go through the valve, the ileocecal valve, into the colon, and everything slows down. It's warm. There's no oxygen. Um, and everything moves slowly in there. And it's odd to think about that this food of ours races through our small intestine and then hits the large intestine and slams on the brakes. And instead of taking an hour and a half to move 20 feet, it's now going to take about 24 hours to move the next five feet. 
and that's not an accident. We have a large intestine that is specifically designed for bacteria to engage in fermentation, which is the breakdown of really complicated plant material molecules. And that's what that's the gate I mean. Is that 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 gate keeps um, the contents of the large colon separated from the from the mm -hmm. uh, small from the small intestine, and creates that environment, uh, an oxygen-free, warm and wet, slow-moving environment where bacteria can thrive. And in that environment, we have a few microorganisms. Then correct. A few thousand, yeah. No, a, few, a few thousand. We've got in our a few in thousand our, species. In our in the American gut, there was probably somewhere in the neighborhood of a thousand species. In the gut of someone who's more traditional, say more rural, from a, maybe a more traditional society that eats primarily plant materials, uh, they 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 have very few refined foods. They may have more on the order of 1,500 species. The American gut is more or less depleted, in fact, because we eat food that just doesn't support as many species. And we do some other damaging things to our microbiome along the way that knock Antibiotics? Out. Antibiotics would be the number one. Uh, I'm going to refer to it as a trauma. It's an attack on the microbiome. Um, and that kind has of like reduced. napalm. Well, uh, when you think about um, trying to shoot, uh, say, a target that's got a bullseye on it, and you're not sure about how well your gun is particularly aiming, and you go, well, I'm not going to shoot that gun. I'm going to shoot a shotgun. So I'll get it. That's our approach toward dealing with bacteria in general. We use a shotgun approach. We may not uh, we, we know we're going to get the target. We may get a lot of things beside the target, but we know we'll get the target. Mm -hmm. So antibiotics being one of the most dangerous things we do to our microbiome, uh, the food we eat being another one, because when we only eat cheeseburgers and french fries and soft drinks, um, you don't need a lot of, of species of microorganisms uh, to handle that. Uh, because there's no fiber in it, is there? No, there's there is in some diets. There's literally none, um, or it's so so tiny that it's hard to it hardly counts. Um, you can't you can't keep a thousand species of bacteria alive on on processed wheat, um, a hamburger bun, um, and a, a leaf of lettuce. It, it's just not enough fiber. We need to be eating. Uh, instead of ounces a week or grams a week of fiber, we need to be eating pounds a week, um, literally. Wow. Uh, um, right. So, you know, I don't think it's any accident that historically when you sat down to a fine dinner, the first thing that was set before you was salad. You should be eating the plants first, not the meat. The meat comes later. Eat the plants first. I, you know, it may not be an accident that our ancestors were pretty smart about what the correct order of foods to eat was. First eat for the microbiome, then eat for the body. Hmm. You know, it's very interesting because um, one of the most heavily advertised food supplements these days are pills that at one time were vegetative matter <laughs> and have since been 
um, reduced to a pill. They take all the fiber out of it, I guess, uh, and um, leave the color and, and uh, some of whatever they consider to be the essence of it uh, on the principle that nobody has time to eat the food that they need to eat. So here is this pill that uh, once was fruit or once was vegetables, but uh, now no longer has any of the fiber in it. So it seems like we're kind of heading in the wrong direction. Well, the the way we're making food these days um, is, in my opinion, definitely the wrong direction. And I touched on that in the in the book we talked about before, Chasing the Red Queen. But the industrialized process that we've created to make food is reducing the amount of um, high quality nutrients. Uh, it's diluting the nutrient content. <clears throat> we can, we can eat, we're eating more of less. Yeah, we're getting less in what we do eat, and when we eat more, we're almost compensating for the lack of nutrients that are in the food we're eating. But that, but because we've upped the calorie content, we're eating more calories. And there we are again, back in the good old fat cycle. So. Um, We're going to take a quick break here coming up, Uh, but when we come back, Andy, I would like for you to tell us what happens when we don't treat this microbiome uh, in in our digestive system with respect and feed it what it needs to be fed, because obviously we're not feeding it what it needs to be fed, and... um, it seems like we're finding ourselves in a number of different troubles with respect to our body. Some of them have relate to the body, some to the mind, uh, and I suspect some to the spirit as well. Uh, but we obviously are living on, on food that uh, are not foods that are not respectful uh, and needed by the microbiome. The hundred trillion little critters who live with us and in us and on us. Um, So what happens when we are disrespectful of them? This is the Food Chain Radio Program. Michael Olson, your host for this hour of What's Eating What. Today we're talking with Andy Dyer, who is a professor of biology at the University of South Carolina and the author of Eater's Digest, which is an incredible tour de force of what we should be eating and how we should be thinking about what we eat. Eaters Digest, for those of you out there who happen to eat food, not a bad way to spend some time. We will be right back. So much to say, so little time to say it, on The Food Chain with Michael Olson. Well, we do have a few minutes left to talk, and there's so much to be talking about with respect to the population of a hundred trillion microorganisms that live with us, in us, on us. Do, do they have a right? To, do they have a vote? Have you th- Think about that. We carry them around with us always. From, a, from the moment we slide down the chute and pull the ripcord, we carry these critters with us. Uh, that they're so small and and don't have a very loud voice, we ignore them, don't pay any attention to them. 
But what happens, Andy Dyer, when we don't pay attention to them, when we disrespect them, when we don't feed them what they need to be fed? Well, I think those are things we're finding out now. Um, we've been we've been in this process for some time, as you know, um, changing the way we make food, raise food, grow food um, for about 70, 75, going on 80 years now. And we're starting to see some really dangerous signs that we're on the wrong path when it comes to nutrition and what nutrition should mean to us. Um, we have always focused our diet on carbs, fats, and proteins. Sometimes carbs are bad, sometimes fats are bad. At one time, protein was bad. Um, but we're always talking about food for us, and we're not talking about food for them. And I think that if we want to get back on a pathway of healthy eating, we have to think more about them and less about us. I think that's the situation we're finding ourselves in now, and now with medical research finding that a lot of these interesting and strange diseases that we're seeing these days, there may be a strong link with the kind of food, the low-quality, very processed Western diet that we've been eating may be responsible. What kind of problems are we talking about? Uh, there have been implications of everything from autism, ADHD, allergies, asthma, um, autoimmune diseases, the different diseases of the digestive system like IBS and celiac and Crohn's and gluten intolerance to even late onset diseases like Parkinson's and Alzheimer's. There are connections between the microbiome and our neurological system and our brain function. There are connections with uh, development of, of very young children, age one to age two in that neighborhood, in the development of their uh, nervous system. Um, the problem is we're looking at something that happens at, in connection with other potential problems, and we're not linking it up very clearly or cleanly to the microbiome and it's a difficult thing to do how do you how do you create this cause and effect relationship when when there are so many different variables mm -hmm. um, so for instance our use of antibiotics antibiotics are great antibiotics saved all of our lives at one time or another but should we use them frequently? No, we shouldn't. We should use them only as needed. But also, we tend to overuse them just to be on the safe side. And it's going to turn out, I strongly suspect, that we've been making a very serious mistake using them without strong consideration of what else they might be doing in our body. It's, so it's it, that sort of thing. We And there's also the element of time. Um, because yeah, it's a very tough element. Because the things that you of which you speak happen over extended periods of time. Uh, they don't just happen. It's not like chopping your finger off or something. You know, it's, we're talking time here, and so it's easy to ignore those kinds of things. But as you speak, and and you talk about uh, our food, it seems like everything we're doing all the way up and down the food chain, from the moment we're born uh, to the moment we check out is wrong. The way, we, the way we're 
preparing our food um, barely serves us and is not serving our microbiome at all. Increasingly, increasingly, yeah. I think a, a good indication of what you're referring to is how many times you look at a processed food at the store and it says enriched on the back. So enriched white wheat, enriched corn, enriched, you know, these different things. Uh, when we want fiber in something, we have to add the fiber back in because it's not there anymore. So what I see in processed food is that we are constantly adding things in because we've been either completely removing them or we've been diluting them to such an extent that that food no longer really has that component anymore. Uh, on any kind of processed food, I think you'll see that. So it's sort of like this out of control, you know, the runaway train problem. We started on this pathway and we thought, well, this is a good pathway. Let's continue this. And But we've... We've sort of lost sight of where we came from in an effort to get somewhere we think we ought to be going. And, and I, th I think we're now experiencing some difficulties, and we're not quite sure where along that pathway those difficulties came in. And I think it's what you're referring to. It's this time component. It took a while. We didn't believe that smoking cigarettes caused lung cancer for a long time and then we sort of waffled on it and debated it and waited 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 for really strong evidence i think uh, i think the evidence is in on that well we haven't quite gotten there yet with the microbiome but it's coming so if the mistreatment of our microbiome is um part of the of all of these problems that we've been talking about what on earth could a drug do to address that oh i don't know if there's any drug that can address that the microbiome is is the opposite of drugs um microbiome is living in a way that focuses on natural processes and i think what we're we're going to realize is that our our attraction to solutions like drugs only interferes with that. It makes it worse, not better. Um, there are some examples in, in the medical world these days where if you keep adding drugs, it just makes it worse. Um, and antibiotics are a good example of that. So, so there, this is not a solution that's, a, that's going to be solved. This is not a problem that's going to be solved with technological solutions. This is going to be a, a problem that has to be considered in light of what is normal and natural and part of our heritage rather than what we can do technologically. So do you think the pharmaceutical industry is going to come knocking at your door at 2 in the morning for saying uh, what you're saying? <laughs> <laughs> There's always going to be a need for uh, drugs that address emergencies, um, um, problems that, that need an immediate solution. But we should always then fall back to, how do I get back to a situation where I don't need the drug? Right now, what the pharmaceutical industry is doing in our world is they're, they're providing solutions to us, but they are not providing a timeline for for curing. So they're not curative at all. They are solving problems, not curing the problems. So if you think about all the drugs you see advertised on late night TV that have 50 side effects, 
if you're willing to put up with the side effects, which means that there's interference with all kinds of other processes in your body in order to deal with this one problem, well, then this is the drug for you. But it is not ever claiming to cure the problem. You will never get off of that drug because the problem hasn't been solved. And I think that's what we need to step back and think about. How come our ancestors didn't have these problems, but we do? What are we doing differently? What are we doing wrong? How can we get back to a situation where we we are... Now, I'm not going to say that 200 years ago we were super healthy. There were other things in our world that killed people. But when it comes to the food we ate, we were eating different food than we eat now. And it's very likely the food we're eating now are making it worse, is making it worse. Yeah. You know, and you're talking about acquiring a community of bacteria. When I was uh, a wee boy, I spent my summers on the grandparents' farm and um, milked cows out in the in the barn, and every th- there was fecal matter everywhere, uh, from cows, from goats, from horses, from chickens. Uh, you know, you'd milk a cow and carry buckets full of milk <laughs> across the barnyard, um, and pour it in a separator and and drink it. Um, right out of the cow. Right out of the cow. Yeah. Um, and I, I think I must have acquired quite a, a, a population of critters in my body from from being raised like that. Whereas now we're raising children in an antiseptic environment, so keep away from those bugs and and don't eat any good food. So um, it seems like we're really headed in the wrong direction. So now that we have you here. What the heck is the right direction for us to take? Let's start with our our basic diet. Chicken, beer, we're doing good. Uh, We are surrounded by options. Um, So much food, so much food around us all the time. And we've literally made it so it's easier to go buy food than to cook our own food. Very few people really, really cook much Um, because it's just too easy and it's cheap. It doesn't cost much money. You need to think seriously about that. If it costs that little money to make food, package it, ship it to the market, and sell it to you, how much? How good could that food possibly be? Yeah, Michael Olson's third law of the food chain. Cheap food isn't. Ain't. Yeah. <laughs> um, something's going on there to make food that cheap. The dollar menu at fast food restaurants, thats a it's a gimmick. In order to sell something for a dollar, it has to have virtually nothing in it. I mean, other than fats, carbs, and and protein, um, it doesn't have anything that we, nutritionally speaking, uh, nothing in it we need. So in in essence, there's there's very little there for us and nothing there for the microbiome of our body. So if we understand that we have an ecosystem, a really big, diverse ecosystem living inside us, and it provides all these different services to us, some of which we haven't even figured out. No, most of which we haven't figured out. We know very little, but we know it's there. We know it works. And now we're finding out, oh, these are, this is really important to our health. And our health as we age, our health as when we're children, it's just all throughout our life. And we don't feed it? It doesn't make any sense. And how do we feed it? We eat plants. We eat the strongest-tasting, chewiest, 
plants. We eat fruit. We eat dried fruit. We eat nuts and seeds and and anything we can get our hands on, but it's got to be plant-based. Everything else is just calories for our body. Energist um, engine food. Yeah, and we need to run our body. Yeah. So, but but I promise you, if you uh, if you eat plants first, uh, you'll not starve to death. You'll get you'll get the calories you need. But if you don't eat plants first, there's a very good chance you won't eat plants. Right. So if we start with the cheeseburger and then go, I'll have a salad when I'm done. You've got it backwards. So feed the microbiome first. So th- this is this yourself. is this is actually really simple. It's very simple. Which, of course, is the way the good Lord made it for us, because we're kind of stupid when it gets right down to it. If it was complicated, <laughs> we'd be in really big trouble. Oh, it couldn't be any simpler. Just eat plants first. And it's as simple as that. And by eating plants, you're feeding the microbiome that um, controls, that has a vote. And how you live your life. Well, it will let you know sooner or later. Yes, it will. It has a vote. Um, the eating plants first is, uh, I mean, it's got to be whole foods. So we've got a number of writers who've written about food, like Michael Pollan, who's wonderful. Um, and even says, eat, eat food, eat things you recognize, eat whole food, eat plants, a lot of them. Um, focus on the plants. That's where we should be because... The, it's the part of the food that we can't digest that the microbiome gets, and that's fiber. That's cellulose. That's leaves and stems and all that stuff that's chewy. Um, we don't digest that. It just goes right through us. It's fiber. And you can eat fruit. You can eat vegetables. They're loaded with vitamins of various sorts. They're loaded with antioxidants, so they're good for us anyway. All of those other chemicals in the plants are doing wonderful things for us. It's not just the fiber. By eating plants, we're eating nutrition. We're, so we're feeding the microbiome, but we're also getting all those little micronutrients that our bodies crave that helps us operate efficiently and, and in a healthy way. And we're still going to get the calories. No one ever starved yeah. um, in our world. We don't starve. Although I will say that what we are doing is dying of malnutrition. We're not starving. We're just dying of malnutrition. Which makes a good eating. case for the fact that we are starving ourselves. Well, in a sense, yeah. I mean, we're not starving for lack of calories, oh, though. There you go. We're starving for lack of nutrients. Well, Andy Dyer, it's always so much fun. When, no, no more five years, okay? <laughs> <laughs> no more five years. Andy Dyer, who is a professor of biology at the University of South Carolina and author of Eater's Digest, a new book just out. Great read. I only wish I would have had you as a biology instructor when I was going to school. I might not have chased after Chinese literature then. <laughs> this has been the Food Chain, Michael Olson. Thank you all for tuning in. And please remember Michael Olson's third law of the food chain cheap food isn't. You've been listening to the award-winning Food Chain Radio Show with Michael Olson. And if your friends miss the show, tell them to log on the Food Chain page at metrofarm.com for a listen. Now, go out and find some food with its farmer's face on it and live. Live.